0: Here we go. Um, This is uh, Kial, Kale, Kalia, Kalia, um, uh, Tomato, Tomato. Um, I am thinking about doing a response to Chris Date and Keith Giles, uh, their debate between um, the eschatological positions of. You know, like biblical annihilationism and biblical universalism. Um, I was thinking of playing that in a few, but first I thought I would share some thoughts that I wrote on my phone to kind of explain my current thinking with annihilationism and um, how, at least looked at in certain ways, it, it appears illogical. So we'll see whether the error uh, exists uh, in Annihilation itself or if it exists more in my own mind. Let me pull up my notes on my phone just to give a indication of what I'm talking about. Okay. I would show them on the screen, but there's so many other random things in there like shopping lists that I thought it would be better to just read it on my phone. Um, okay, here we go. I hope this doesn't trigger people too much because I'm writing this more in a uh, persona. I mean, and maybe I'll get swept up in my own arguments by the time this is through. We'll see, but it's not that I claim to know this is true. I'm writing from a certain perspective from which it is advanced that certain things are true. Here we go. The technical flaw... In annihilationism is that whether one admits it or not the annihilationist is in the position of having to affirm that capital punishment is somehow the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner it's a very bold claim right off the bat if if I were like a analytical philosopher I would give it some. I would give this proposition some letter that refers perspicuously to the proposition itself let the proposition be referred to as P, so I would call the claim that uh, capital punishment is the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner, I would call that proposition P. Uh, but if the annihilationist wants to affirm, well, we all know P isn't true, that's that's another premise in my argument. Um, But if the annihilationist wants to affirm some temporary resurrection of the unrighteous dead um, to get a few blows in before the final execution um, and even if the annihilationist wants to affirm this for scriptural rather than philosophical reasons um, that puts the annihilationist in the position of having to deny p having to deny uh, the claim that capital punishment is somehow again the perfect one size fits all punishment for every sinner. And the reason why is that it, ordinarily justice is understood as an operation that writes some existing imbalance. And I have a footnote here, which is like leave aside for now the manifest absurdity of certain corner cases, such as calling a suicide victim back into existence or even just sustaining them in being, just so that that person can be punished by giving them what they wanted in the first place and already had prior to the punishment, or would have had were they not sustained in being um, after their initial death. If the dead already exist in the state which the annihilationist believes perfect justice would put them in, it makes no sense to resurrect them or otherwise sustain them in being. and. Uh, crucially annihilationism aka conditionalism i.e. conditional immortality the understanding that immortality is not a given but is conditional upon the divine uh, will uh, crucially annihilationism, is align, <laughs> annihilationism asserts that souls aren't inherently immortal but have rather to be sustained in being by God who alone is the source of life in existence But if the dead aren't resurrected or sustained in being after the initial death, then the annihilationist is in the position of having to affirm B. Again, the claim that capital punishment is somehow the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner, leading to the conclusion that Hitler, how could I not invoke him, uh, dear listener, um, uh, who cheated justice by committing suicide before he could be captured, receives the same eschatological punishment as a petty criminal who is killed in the process of being apprehended in a case of police police brutality. So, now there's some big claims in there, but I'll give you a flavor of what I mean. If we approach this as a sort of flow chart or decision tree, in my notes I refer to this as the greater flow to call, um... Do you believe in a resurrection of the unrighteous dead, however temporary? This is a question for the annihilationist. If the answer is yes, do you believe in an intermediate state? We'll take the case where the answer is yes. Do you believe the punishment for sin should be infinite? Um, and I'm not specifying how. Duration, magnitude, doesn't matter. But should it be of an infinite character, understanding this, you know, the sins committed by uh, human wrongdoers as as infinitely grave or infinitely serious? If the answer is yes, then why do you have to add to an infinite punishment then, where the infinite punishment is understood as annihilation? In other words, why an intermediate state and or resurrection? Uh, for the unrighteous dead. So, there's something going on here that maybe I need to expand upon. I thought I might be able to present this information at a higher level of abstraction without need for context, but I'm seeing now that that won't do. I'll read this pretend debate that I had with a pretend annihilationist who believes in annihilation uh, with the intermediate state. Okay, Cal, your arguments only address annihilationism without the intermediate state. Most annihilationists believe you experience conscious torment uh, between death and the resurrection. Okay, here is my question. On annihilationism, does sin deserve infinite punishment or finite punishment? Let's take the case first where the annihilationist may answer infinite punishment. I'm assuming that this infinite punishment is accomplished by the capital punishment component of this eschatological picture. It has two components: it has the inter- the suffering, um, if any, that's associated with the intermediate state, plus the, the you know the coup de grace, the the um, uh, the capital punishment. Um, I'm assuming that infinite punishment is accomplished by the capital punishment component of this picture. But if um, capital punishment is infinite punishment, then why is there an intermediate state at all? Um, why is God actively sustaining the souls of the wrongdoers in being, um, especially if one holds that post-mortem conversion is not possible? Um, is capital punishment somehow not actually infinite enough? So the reasoning here is that if if sin deserves an infinite punishment um, one assumes that all of the infinity as it were is being provided by um, the capital punishment uh, side of the equation you know you can't argue that an infinite anything is composed of finite terms you can't get infinity by adding finite terms you're not going to say well the finite torment of the intermediate state plus the infinite non-existence of annihilation somehow equals the infinite punishment. It's it's like adding 2 plus infinity doesn't make It isn't what you need to add to infinity to make infinity infinite. It's already infinite. You don't need to add that temporary, a finite term to an infinite punishment in order to make the infinite punishment infinite. Now, I apologize because somehow the... Recording that I was doing got cut off. Um, I seem to have issues with OBS and figuring out When exactly the recording stops or under what conditions, so please Bear with me, but I will say by way of explanation um, right now That um, is this draws the effect distracting Sorry for being so distractible Just minimize it Okay, I'll maximize it later um um, I would say just sort of by way of still setting things up that probably the true form of annihilationism that has to be grappled with um, the form of which every other form is kind of lesser and weaker derivative is the form of annihilationism that says okay a sinner um, sins dies um, their soul is held in an intermediate state, which is painful to the degree that they were sinful in life. Um, i.e. Hitler's intermediate state is worse than um, some petty criminals. Um, and um, then they are resurrected and given a body only so that uh, they can be destroyed again. Um, you know, body and soul is destroyed in Gehenna. Um So that's sort of the version of annihilationism that I'm reacting to right now in this uh, node of the flowchart. What I will say about it is that it very much presumes, once you analyze it, that um, sin is infinitely serious and warrants infinite punishment. Why? Because, um, again, the non-existence is the punishment. uh, as my friend puts it, uh, the punishment is finitude itself, um, and it's infinite finitude, it's infinite non-existence. In other words, what is not happening is that someone is winked out of existence, and then brought back into existence as a form of punishment. Indeed, one doesn't see what that form of you know, uh, punishment, quote-unquote, would accomplish. Um however, you know it, it is it is there is a meaningful alternative to infinite non-existence, namely finite non-existence. They wink out of existence and then are brought back, which is you know what arguably happens on another version of annihilationism, Annihilationism with what you might call soul sleep, in which the sinner lives, sins, dies, and then there's an unconscious interval um, after which, uh, the the sinner is resurrected, so that they can be um, judged and then sent back into oblivion. Um, so, right now, uh, what I want to observe about the kind of the annihilationism with the intermediate state um, is that again, it is presuming that sin is infinitely serious and requires infinite punishment. I imagine the work of infinite punishment to be done by, the, uh, the capital punishment, um, and that I don't imagine that that preceding it with some finite interval of conscious torment, however severe or grave, I don't imagine that's ultimately making the punishment any more infinite, any more than I imagine adding two, to infinity makes infinity any more infinite, and so. The question at this point is that if non-existence is enough to punish the deed, the misdeed of some sinner, then the question is, why proceed it with conscious torment? That That soul doesn't naturally exist in a state of conscious torment out of its own inertia or because souls are inherently immortal for proponents of annihilationism, That notion is a Hellenic notion, it's not a Jewish notion, i.e. it's not a Biblical notion. Um, So the question is, um, uh, why would God sustain um, a soul in being um, for punishment which is redundant? Because if the non-existence is enough, then then you know why is there unnecessary punishment if the non-existence is not enough um, how is infinite punishment being provided even if you add some period of um, conscious torment uh, to uh, some you know infinite or indefinite period of non-existence it, where both of these components are understood as finite terms, two finite terms added together won't make infinity. Um, so the point is, you know, either one of these components, uh, you know, one of these components has to be enough on its own uh, to represent a form of infinite punishment. And if neither of these terms is, uh, 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 unable on its own to count as a form of infinite punishment then adding them together won't give you an infinite uh, form of punishment so um, you know that's that's a problem for the the annihilationist who wants to hold that the prop the punishment for sin is properly infinite um, because and and that there's an intermediate state or a resurrection because ordinarily, uh, justice is understood as a kind of operation that writes some existing imbalance, you know, um, and, um, you know, pre-resurrection, if a soul is not sustained in being, they're already in that state that perfect justice would eventually call them to on annihilationism. So it, it makes the operation of resurrection and re or re-annihilation redundant from uh, uh, an eschatological point of view from from a standpoint of uh, uh, implementing God's justice on annihilationism. So now let's take the other side of the disjunct where the annihilationist contends that uh, sin is only punished with or should only be punished um, you know with a finite punishment uh, and there's an intermediate state of conscious torment. My question would be, once the intermediate state of conscious torment um, happens, it's a, it's a, and it's a finite you know uh, interval of time. Why isn't the sinner allowed to be resurrected, um, having you know served their sentence? I had a friend answer me this morning that it's because the sinner would go on sinning afterward. So, but the issue there is that. That's that's not really as far as you know retributive justice goes. It, that 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 answer doesn't have anything to do with retributive justice. Um, and if the fact that a creature will sin is a reason for its um, is a reason for its uh, you know not existing, I don't understand why creation really occurred because God knew that we would all sin. It didn't stop him from creating us, uh, you know. So it's kind of natural to assume that once the finite interval of conscious torment is over, um, if if you know the sins of a, a sinner should only be punished finitely, then it's kind of natural to assume that after that they should be uh, let off. You know, you will you will. Uh, You know, you will be in the jailhouse until you have paid the last penny. But then, you know, if you could pay the last penny, you should be able to go free. Um, Now, the thing is, I'm sure no annihilationist would be happy with that. Um, But the question is, if the sentence is served, then why why should there be annihilation on top of that? I want to read a little bit more from my notes. Well, it may be contended that, yes, the coup de grace still needs to be delivered, the, the, the annihilation. However, that punishment is not infinite. It's finite, because after all, it's finitude itself. What, cow could you even mean speaking about infinite finitude? Um, you know, that's like talking about a square circle. Well, what I mean is that it's infinite finitude where you stop existing and then you keep not existing forever. As distinct from the case in which uh, you stopped existing and then came back into existence, um, you know, l- logically that could happen. In fact, it appears to happen on another version of annihilationism, namely annihilationism with soul sleep. Um, so it's not like I'm just speaking word salad. Um, this should be a meaningful complement um, to. Um, uh, uh, you know the prospect of you know infinite finitude there's there's finite finitude and again it's not something i'm making up it's a position which annihilationists uh, themselves uh, hold in in some in some variation of the position so uh my 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 response um would be to deny that uh uh eternal non-existence could count as finite punishment. Because after all, if non-existence is the punishment, and it's infinite non-existence, then it stands to reason that what is being discussed is an infinite punishment. Um, so, you know, it, it um, w- Whether you say that sin should be punished infinitely or finitely... Um, annihilationism isn't going to uh, get you what you want. Uh, let me see. So I think that um, that at least raises some problems for annihilationism with an intermediate state. Um, I want to talk about some problems for annihilationism without an intermediate state, but still with A resurrection of the unrighteous dead however temporary we'll call that soul sleep with resurrection okay so soul sleep with resurrection Um, if annihilation is the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment then why undo the punishment so what do I mean by that let's go back to reflection 51 over here Ordinarily, justice is understood as an operation, which writes some imbalance in the status quo. But in annihilationism, the status quo, i.e., you know, the non-existence of one who has died, uh, is already the state that perfect justice would call that individual to. Um, Thus, resurrection almost undoes justice, or at least makes, you know... uh, the the subsequent annihilation, uh, a redundant operation. So that's kind of an issue. One doesn't imagine, you know, a perfect and ultimate being such as God uh, to be guilty of wasted effort. Um, Perhaps the the resurrection of um, the wicked uh, has to occur in order to furnish um, some spectacle. Um, for everybody else, but I mean, one doesn't know that that's needful. It seems to be anthropomorphizing God a great deal. Also, there there is still, you know, the weird corner case of certain individuals getting exactly what they wanted or at least what they expected. And if there's annihilation with just um soul sleep, well, I mean, one could take it uh, one of two ways. There's there's soul sleep followed by a period of, uh, you know, here's the sentence, and now you are, you know, back to sleep. Just kind of absurd. It's a little bit like if um, uh, it's a little bit like if God looked at um, uh, history's most evil men and asked, "What's going on here? They're sleeping in the peace of death. Oh no, that will never do. Wake up! It's time to go to sleep." there that'll show them um you know but if you have that like sort of pre-judgment torture, is like they get woken up out of soul sleep roughed up a bit and then uh sent back into oblivion the question is why did that why did that torture need to occur because it seems like in that case um if God resurrects them for the purpose of torturing them prior to their re-destruction, it would be as if he valued the torture, not for the end it brought about, but somehow for its own sake, since the torture doesn't serve any long-term purpose. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of a interesting problem. It seems to make God evil in a way. It seems to make him petty. I mean, it seems to. And... Um, all right. Uh, I know, of course, there may be pushback for that, um, but you know, there—it is a suicide victim. Non-existence is exactly what he wants. So you're going to wake him up to tell him, "Hey, wake up! It's time to go to sleep." Um, you know, your suicide was so wrong. I'll punish it by sending you back to the very non-existence that you were already in and that you wanted in the first place to demonstrate my justice somehow. So it's kind of, kind of. Strange, bordering on silly, bordering on comical. Um, or I wrote here, Wow, you you atheist nihilist, you really thought existence was a period of brief absurdity followed by eternal oblivion? To show you just how wrong you were, I'm going to subject you to eternal oblivion. While uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, get to have an endless pit picnic. You know, something like this. It, it's... Um, it's very strange. Um, it's doing strange things to God's justice. But the, the thing is, if we take annihilationism without any resurrection, then we're, we're, we're left with something that also seems clearly unacceptable. We're left with a picture in which Hitler gets the same fate as a petty criminal, and, and God's justice seems to go out the window because Hitler dies and there's, no, there's non-existence. And um, the petty criminal dies and there's non-existence and there's even more unfavorable ways in which this could shake out. For example, you know, Hitler on one level, it looks like at least he thought he was cheating justice um, through death and, and dying on his own terms, you know, um, establishing a bit of autonomy um, with his final act uh, and you know there there's you know conceivably there could be some petty criminal who uh, I mean and it's not even a hypothetical case of, um, you know they they do something really minor' selling loose cigarettes and then in the act of of um, being apprehended by the police they're killed you know either through police brutality or through some accident. And then they get eternal non-existence. And then somehow it is condign for them to face the same fate as Adolf Hitler or vice versa. And that seems like a problem. So with all that as preamble, I'll explain wh- what I think is going on there and what leads to unsatisfactory conclusions however you want to slice annihilationism. The technical flaw in annihilationism is that, whether one admits it or not, the annihilationist is in the position of having to affirm that capital punishment is somehow the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner. We all know that isn't true, but if the annihilationist wants to affirm some temporary resurrection of the unrighteous dead, to get a few blows in before execution, even if the annihilationist wants to affirm this for scriptural rather than philosophical reasons, That puts the annihilationist in the position of having to deny the claim that capital punishment is somehow, again, the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner. Because ordinarily, justice is understood as an operation that writes some existing imbalance. If the dead already exist in the state which um, perfect justice would put them in, it makes no sense to resurrect the dead or otherwise sustain them in being. Um, but if the dead aren't resurrected or sustained in being after the initial death, then the annihilationist is in the position of having to affirm P, having to affirm the claim that capital punishment is somehow the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment, um, which leads to the conclusion that Hitler receives the same punishment, you know, as some petty criminal. Um, so um yeah obviously people people will want to push back on this but you know for me it's like if i'm trying to be an annihilationist trying to imagine holding any of these positions i can't see myself holding any of them because none of them make sense and you might say Cal, look it doesn't have to make sense it's what the bible teaches to which i would say you know fair enough we do try to do a, a literal maybe maybe the principle when reading the bible should be that you should be as literal as possible until the extreme silliness of what you end up with compels you not to be literal you know as we'll see chris date doesn't interpret you know uh, all of revelation literally or maybe not even any of it but this places me in an unfortunate position if i'm trying to be an annihilationist because I'm saying like okay yeah um, uh, you know I, I should try to take the Bible at face value and supposedly face at face value the Bible teaches annihilationism um, un, you know and I should take it at face value unless what I end up with is really silly. However, I feel like what I end up with on any version of annihilationism that you care to name is pretty silly. Um, so you know maybe somebody can set me straight. I would take that as prima facie evidence not to not to take scripture at face value. If taking it face value makes you an annihilationist, um, seems to me that the demands of justice are, at least from this angle, arguably better satisfied by um, eternal conscious torment. And I'll read a few other issues, um, although that's not my position. Um, I'll read a few other issues that occurred to me as I wrote this out. I think they're important. Um, does punishment have to be experienceable if 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 we answer no, then the question is why do the unrighteous dead Actually that's not the one I want. If does punishment need to be experienceable in order to count as punishment? we answer no then why do the unrighteous dead need to be resurrected at all they are already you know being punished or they have already been punished uh the unrighteous dead let's suppose it is contended that the unrighteous dead are never resurrected then hitler gets the same fate as a petty criminal okay punishment let's suppose now that punishment does have to be experienceable then how can annihilation function as punishment how can one experience annihilation um So I think that is uh, worth considering. And I... Uh, let me see... I, um, yeah, it may be time to go ahead and start commenting on the video.
1: Bate. and uh, the two guests that I have with me today are Chris Date, he's right below me, and uh, Keith Giles. I just asked the correct pronunciation, so I got it. Awesome. All right, so uh, I, I wanted to say, we're gonna get...
0: Hold on. I just remembered that um, I made my picture-in-picture my picture screen really small and or I took it out of the screen. So, let me bring this back into the picture. Okay. I wonder if there's some easy way for me to mute my mic when I'm looking at YouTube. The answer is probably not. Maybe it doesn't matter.
1: directly into the the topic today which is this debate we've got 10-minute openings for each guest and then uh, basically open dialogue until we get to some Q&A later so we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time on introductions I want to jump right into the content Uh, but I will just say this that if you'd like to learn more about my guest I have little blurbs in the description of this video and they're actually really interesting so I highly recommend that as you're listening to these openings open up that little dialogue the description and uh, read through some of the things that these guys are doing. I've also got their links there as well. So with that, we're going to get, like I said, really uh, into it really quickly. So let's start with Keith because he's answering this question in the affirmative. He believes that everyone will be saved. So let's uh, let's go over to Keith. Take it away. I'll, uh, I'll set a timer for 10 minutes on my phone and I'll let you know.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Keith Giles and I uh, want to thank you, Cameron and Chris, for this opportunity. Um, I also really appreciate that in the description of, of this uh, broadcast, you've gone ahead and said that I'm right. I really appreciate that. So that gives me a lot of confidence as well. Um, but all kidding aside, yes, I, um, like uh, Chris and, and uh, many of you watching, I once was, was raised as someone who really embraced and taught eternal conscious torment. Um, then I made a shift into uh, embracing the view of annihilationism which Chris uh, also believes. Um, but then as I continue to study the topic, my view on this topic changed into what it is now, which is patristic universalism um, or universal reconciliation or uh, as the early Christians called it. So I'm just gonna share with you some of the things that um, have helped convince me uh, to shift my views on this. So. First of all, what many Christians do not realize is that there have always been three Christian, those are biblically-based views of the doctrine of hell from the very beginning of our faith. Uh, Those three views, of course, are eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, or conditional immortality, um, and the view of universal reconciliation. And what most Christians are also unaware of is the fact that for about the first 400 years or so of church history, the dominant view was universal reconciliation. With annihilation and eternal conscious torment holding minority positions um and there are references to this i can get into when we get into the discussion if you would like but um this is this fact is one of the reasons why for example when augustine went to argue for his to defend his view of eternal conscious torment um took the time to say that indeed very many in his words quote indeed very many close quote christians in his day did not accept uh, this view But he graciously added that they did so without going counter to the divine scriptures admitting that both he and they based their views on uh, on their doctrine of hell
0: maybe i'll just record right now for whatever it is worth um uh, my my feeling that huh at least if we're sola scriptura protestants or whatever (laughs) um doesn't really matter what the early church believed i my understanding is they believed a lot of stuff First of all, they probably weren't a monolith. Second of all, and um, it's various expressions. The early church probably believed a lot of things that we know now. We, we now no longer believe, and then if you just look at the history of Christian belief, there's you know there's a lot of variety. Um, uh, one isn't committed to all of it. Uh, one is committed to the views that make the most sense, um, and um, you know we can I suppose debate on what that is whether. That is what is the most biblical. If so, what does it mean to be the most biblical? Um, uh, you know, or if that's what's most philosophically correct, a lot of people would, up, would for understandable reasons, want to place, you know, give the Bible priority over philosophy. And um, you know, I understand that. My only question would be: Is there? Is it really ever? Uh, is it really ever realistic to imagine that we can be interpreting the Bible? Uh, without doing philosophy, without importing philosophy. But as you can see, I'm sort of, you know, philosophically minded. Um, uh, You know, maybe I'm leaning on my own understanding. So, you know,
2: we'll see. Deeply in the scriptures, although he does say that he suspects that they're more swayed by emotion uh, than the scriptures themselves. He is gracious enough to to admit uh, that the scriptures are what they're basing it on. So I want you to know that my views on reconciliation, universal reconciliation, um, as so many other biblical scholars and theologians, uh, the view is based on the scriptures and not on the motion. Uh, Before I go much further, let me briefly outline this view if you're not familiar with it. Universal reconciliation teaches that everyone will pass through the fire. Now that's usually a shock to people. They usually assume the view means no one passes through the fire. Um, but it's the opposite. Universal reconciliation is taught for the first 400 years of church history is that everyone will pass through the fire. You, me, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. So all three views do accept this idea that there is a fire to pass through in the afterlife, but the difference is that uh, the nature of the fire uh, in universal reconciliation view is not, the nature of the fire, the purpose of the fire is not to torture or to destroy, but to purge cleanse refine and make new and this is supported by the scriptures in both old and new testaments and in um, malachi 3:2, 2 uh, it speaks of the lord's messenger or the messiah as one who will come and execute judgment that is compared to a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap again the purpose of that is to cleanse and restore not to destroy or torture hebrews 12:5 tells us that god's discipline those that first of all he disciplines those that he loves and also stresses that all of us undergo discipline and, and then it tells us that there is a purpose for the discipline of god so that it says we can all share in the holiness of God and that the fruit of this is the peaceful fruit of righteousness um, so there is a purpose behind this this fire or in a uh, purpose behind god's um, reaction to you know quote unquote punishment um, and in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 Paul affirms the same thing when he says that the fire of God's judgment will, quote, test the quality of each person's work, and then says that if everything is burned up, that there's nothing of any value, the builder, he says, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So there is plenty of biblical support for this belief that all will pass through the fire after death and that the purpose and nature of this fire is not death, destruction, or torture but actually is an expression of the holy love of God which cleanses us so that we may share in his holiness and it is a fire that yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And many Christian uh, church fathers believe this uh, throughout history including notable saints such as Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Clement of Alexandria, Basil the Great, Theophilus of Antioch, Didymus the blind, and many, many others. But simply because um, the majority of Christians embrace that doctrine for so long does not in itself prove anything nor does it follow that we should believe what they believe simply because of their numbers or their pedigree or the length of time uh, that such a view held sway in the early church. What does matter uh, is whether or not the scriptures teach such a thing, and I believe they do. Uh, First Timothy 4.10, we have, uh, it says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 says, For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Ephesians 1, 7-10 tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in himself, things in heaven, and things on earth. Romans 5, 8 through 19, where it says that, um, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should gladly Confess, that's exomologeo in the Greek, which is translated, the proper translation is to gladly, exuberantly, joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Romans 1 through 11, the entire argument, brilliantly argued through the device of prosopopia by Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, culminates in the declaration. That God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. And to celebrate his touchdown victory in the end zone, Paul immediately follows that final point in the argument uh, with this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for Him? for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the very next verse, Romans chapter 12, verse one is therefore in view of God's mercy, what mercy, the mercy that's shown to everyone. This is your response to submit yourself to God as a living sacrifice. So no matter what view of hell we embrace we must also accept that we are also at the same time embracing a view of god we either will see god as a torturer we will see god as a destroyer or we will see god as a loving father who heals and rescues his children i would say that either god desires to save all or god does not scripture affirms that god does desire that all shall be saved Either God has the power to save all or God does not. And scripture affirms, yes, indeed, God does have all the power to save everyone. Either the love of God endures forever and his wrath is only for a moment, or that scripture is wrong and it is God's wrath that endures forever and it's his love that is only for a moment. So if God desires to save everyone and if God alone has the power to save everyone, I would ask why would God not save everyone? I firmly believe that the God revealed to us in Christ is indeed one who desires to save everyone, has the power to save everyone, and without a doubt, will save everyone just as he promised. For Christ is the Savior of the world and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you.
1: Wow, that was very, very concise. You've still got about two minutes remaining. And so uh, <laughs> that that what, what that'll do is it'll just give us more time to, uh, to have dialogue in just a little awesome. bit. So we're about to pass it over to Chris. Thank you for your opening statement. I did want to say two things before we pass it over to Chris. The first thing is that I'm noticing some flashing going across the screen. I asked people in the live chat about it if they're seeing it. And you guys saying that you, you can see it. Uh, I just want to say sorry about that. Technical issues like this just happen. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's, pro- it's due to my software or something. Uh, I did want to say on the positive side that these flashes actually kind of prove that God exists because they, these are contingent events and contingent things in my view. Uh, lead or uh, yeah take us to the existence of god so just something to think about uh second thing is that i wanted to apologize to keith and uh you may be
0: that's an interesting metaphysical thread if full on. you know i have thought about questions such as uh you know god supposedly creating the world um when he didn't have to but he did uh was his decision necessitated by something? Uh, Surely not something uh, external to his own nature. Um, So maybe God's decision to create the world was necessitated by something within his nature, Um, in which case the world is as necessary as God. But a lot of theologians don't like the sound of that. They still want to insist that the world is contingent. So the world um, was... Necessitated um, by something whose existence was itself either necessary or contingent. If we answer that its existence was necessary, again it was it was necessitated. The implication appears to be that it was necessitated by some aspect of God's nature. Unless we answer again that it was contingent, and on and on, there's an infinite regress. Is there any solution to this question, or does this mean? that determinism is the only theory that can account for you know, divine causation it had to be deterministic and there has to be as it were a kind of modal collapse the world has to be as necessary as god there can be no contingency in this picture well the other option something i learned from chris langan the other option to an infinite regress is a loop we can have a kind of cosmogonic as it were loop Kind of God who is his own, in some sense, he's like his own kind of self-creative act, self a self-relativized God, who from the beginning enfolds the end in his beginning, and a kind of uh, loop loop loop-like dynamic of contingency. I don't know. This is speculative. Um, It's the kind of things I like to speculate about. The kinds of things I have speculated about in previous episodes of my podcast but anyway i'm sure chris day has no patience for that let's see what he wants to say
1: be wondering why i'm tr- why i'm apologizing to keith but i it, so chris is about to show some slides as part of his opening statement but i didn't tell keith i didn't we didn't talk about presenting slides chris just that's just what he does is he's so uh, he, he's just awesome like that so it's my fault i take responsibility for not letting keith know that he could have uh, could have put some slides together to present today so uh he's I don't want to say that you're at a disadvantage this is this is more of a conversation but I did want to apologize for that so I take full responsibility
2: I accept your apology you're totally forgiven my friend
1: awesome alright alright with that let's pass it over to uh, to Chris and you're you guys are gonna be amazed at how beautiful this is so just go ahead Chris
3: I don't know that that's true, but um, we'll, we'll see what viewers think. So I want to begin by first thanking the people that are making this debate happen. I've been saying for a number of years that this debate between conditional immortality or annihilationism and universalism is the debate over hell in the future, the, the, the debate that is the future of the intramural evangelical discussion on the nature of hell. Uh, my opponent...
0: Not if I succeed in portraying annihilationism as irredeemably silly. But, you know, it's an open question whether I'll succeed in doing that
3: has said in Jesus Undefeated that of the three views, eternal torment, annihilationism and universalism, only the latter two have any real legs to stand on. And I agree, and in fact, I would argue that the doctrine of eternal torment lacks the resources necessary to refute universalism. Um, And so it's for that reason that I'm very thankful to Cameron Bertuzzi for hosting this debate and to my opponent, Keith, for participating. Now, let me begin by defining what conditional immortality and annihilationism are, because I think there are some misconceptions even on the part of my opponent. Conditional immortality is the view that only those who meet the condition of being saved will be raised immortal and live forever. Now, as for those who um, don't meet that condition, my opponent argues or says that, in my view, they will suffer in hell until all their sins are atoned for, and then they will be destroyed. But that's not quite right. Rather, we say that the wages of sin is death, not torment followed by death, but death, which may be inflicted painfully uh, upon those not meeting the condition of immortality. By contrast, universe...
0: Mm, so it seems to me like a hallmark of annihilationism that there's a very literal understanding of what death is. To me, this understanding of destruction is deeper, deeper than mere death. You know, Hitler chose mere death in order to escape whatever this is.
3: Universalism, like traditionalism or eternal torment, entails the lost rising immortal as well. Uh, Annihilationism is sort of the flip side of the coin of conditionalism, um, and it is the view that the destruction wrought in hell ends the conscious existence of people that are uh, destroyed there forever. This is to say that if humans have immaterial souls that subsist consciously beyond the first death, they will be destroyed with bodies in the second death. And importantly, there isn't any view entailed by conditionalism or annihilationism when it comes to human constitution, that is, do humans have souls or not? or the intermediate state, that is whether it's consciously experienced or not. These are secondary issues that uh, are in-house debates within conditionalist, uh, the conditionalist community and within the traditionalist community for that matter. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the history. What did intertestamental Jews and the earliest Christians believe? Jews between the Testaments believed in either conditionalism or eternal torment. This is said by virtually all the literature, including more pop-level literature, like Chans and Sprinkles Erasing Hell, but also more scholarly literature literature, like Paul Williamson's Death and the Act.
0: You know what else the Jews believed in? They believed in, like, not total depravity. I know Chris is Reformed. You know they, you've got all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament, like um, uh, you know, Job is insisting on his righteousness. Like, what are you talking about, Job? You know, you're you're totally depraved. Uh, You got you got you know, um, you've got the idea that Jesus is not the, the Davidic Messiah, which I mean, if you you know look at the conditions for that in a literal sense. One sort of has to agree with the Jews that, you know, no, he isn't. Um, The Jews also believed in Unitarianism. And, um, you know, um, if one wants to let the former Jewish understanding of things dictate the interpretation of the rest of Scripture, there will be no as it were progressive revelation and Trinity is very much a feature of that Um, along with Jesus status as the Messiah I would argue Um, um, and um, you know these later doctrines of justification you know by faith alone through grace and imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ like you know all these are somewhat foreign to Jewish thought. These are more features of um, 15th or 16th century uh, Reformed Christianity. It's European, different languages. So anyway, I'm just saying, like, no. One doesn't quite get Reformed Christianity um, out of um, out of uh, the 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 intentions of of Jewish authors, whether within the Bible or out of it
3: afterlife. Jewish writings between the Testaments, that is, after the Old Testament and before the New, reflect no belief in universalism whatsoever. Uh, the universalist and historian Ilaria Ramelli identifies only two extremely dubious candidates, one of which is the Book of Parables, which is a portion of First Enoch, but this is an extremely questionable interpretation by just one single author that Ramelli cites with no support from anybody else. The other candidate is for Ezra, which was written after Jesus' time and by Ramelli's own admission is not an overtly universalistic text. Now, of course, intertest...
0: Yeah, again, I'll, I'll just say fair enough, but it's not like... Um... I would go searching their writings for the Trinity either. It's going to be some things that are distinctly Christian, one assumes.
3: ...mental Jewish writings did influence both Jesus and the writers and readers of the New Testament. This is affirmed by, again, people like Paul Williamson in the more scholarly literature, and Chan and Sprinkle in the more pop-level literature. And without exception, these writings anticipate some people never being redeemed either because they will suffer forever in hell or be finally destroyed there. And so Christians should therefore be predisposed to rejecting universalism in the absence of extremely compelling evidence in its favor. Now as for the early church, the earliest post-apostolic Christians were not universalists. You wouldn't get that reading my opponent's book because in my in his book uh, my opponent says that for the first 500 years almost everyone were universalists. He says that demonstrating that the earliest...
0: If it were shown that most early Christians, uh, or indeed just a sizable number, believed in the possibility of post-mortem redemption. I wouldn't assume that post-mortem redemption was thereby proven, um, nor would I expect my hypothetical opponent to assume uh, post-mortem redemption uh, being true on that basis. For a similar reason, I'm not really going to be swayed by whether any or how many in the in the earliest days of the church believed in patristic universalism or or what have you just doesn't seem to me relevant
3: christians embraced universalism is very easy to do but these are wildly misleading statements now i'm not saying that my opponent intends to mislead but they do mislead nonetheless you see the earliest post-apostolic christians were in fact conditionalists or annihilationists and that's by my opponent's own admission you see, in his book, he says he asks who believed in conditionalism, and then he lists Barnabas, Matthätes, Hermas, and Irenaeus, each of whom precedes in history those that my opponent offers as early believers of universalism, uh, in the likes of Clement of Alexandria and Origen. In fact, added to Giles' list should be early conditionalists like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and the writers of the Didache. And what all of this means is that at least seven Christian conditionalists and their writings from 50 to 150 AD or so are all earlier than the first Christian universalists. Uh, and this is affirmed by even Steve Gregg, whom my opponent quotes approvingly in his book. So, the earliest post apostolic Christians were conditionalists, not universalists, and some of them, in fact, may have been disciples of the original apostles or just one generation removed therefrom. Meanwhile, no record exists of Christian universalists prior to nearly 200 AD, and so, again, Christians should be predisposed to rejecting universalism in the absence of extremely compelling evidence in its favor. So, now let's turn to that evidence and ask, what does the Bible teach is the ending to its own story? Well, the book of Revelation warns of a second death that will be suffered by the resurrected lost after an epoch of time symbolized by a thousand years. The phrase second death in 2014 and 218 appears in the contemporaneous Aramaic Targums, where it means the unrighteous will literally die again, contrary to universalism.
0: Yeah, again, if Christianity is interpreted through these sort of external Jewish sources, then... Probably one, one ends up with something other than Christianity just, just being real here.
3: In fact, these lost uh, join Death and Hades in 2014 and 15, which are symbolized earlier in John's vision as conscious beings, just like the lost, just like the devil. And Death and Hades will, in fact, be annihilated according to 21.4, which suggests that so too will everything be thrown into the lake of fire. Now universalism forces my opponent to resort to one or more erroneous readings of this text. One such erroneous reading is that it's only dead people who are currently being judged at the lake of fire. This is false. These are in fact resurrected people. And that's why the text says that death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. This is a picture of resurrection. In fact, that's why their resurrection is preceded by what John calls the first resurrection. This is the second resurrection. So these are not dead people.
0: Okay. let me. I hope I understand uh, uh, Dates' point here. Universalism forces Giles, and I would assume anyone, any Universalist, to resort to one or more erroneous readings of this text. Yeah. Only the dead are judged according to what is written in the Book of Life. I mean, as far as I know, you know, I, I think that like everyone would be raised up and then judged on that day, and then the unrighteous or whatever, are thrown into the lake of fire i mean i I think that's my view i think that's state's view
3: these are resurrected people
0: Uh, i'm a universalist by the way you know and my own eschatological view is rather simple it's that you know the sins committed in human life are finite they're you know punished with um a finite punishment which you know is retributively proportional to the sin but it's also corrective um, so afterwards, you know, they're, they're not the kinds of people who sin anymore. They see the, the objective consequences of what they did and so forth. So I think that that, that little view just by itself avoids just the tremendous problems of both annihilationism and, uh, eternal conscious torment all by itself. You may argue it's not scriptural, which, you know, uh, we got to see if that's true. And we've got to see what it means for something to be scriptural. And we got to see if other views can survive the tests of uh, internal scriptural consistency i'm still exploring that i'm still open to that
3: being judged secondly um another erroneous reading that Giles suggests is that there is not in fact anybody who ends up in the lake of fire but this is false as well um he bases this on the word if in revelation 2014 or 15 but there is no if when uh, in 21 8 god talks about those whose portion will be in
0: Okay, yeah, for whatever it is worth, my view is that you know, all the unrighteous dead are resurrected, let's say, in the, in the symbolic um, picture of Revelation, and then they're thrown into the lake of fire. I can at least affirm that that's what's symbolically happening.
3: In the lake of fire. And besides, in his own book, my opponent says that in Revelation, the wicked are in the lake of fire. The third erroneous reading that my opponent suggests is that the entirety of the book of Revelation has already happened. He says that this judgment of the dead depicted in Revelation 20 took place when Christ...
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's Revelation. Is it is it past? Or is it future? Or is the Revelation way to read Revelation to say that it's it's about what was and what is and what will be? So it's like on some level it's perennial. It's, it's all of these things at once. There's a preterist sense even the fully preterist sense in which it's true. There's a partial preterist sense in which it's true. There's a wholly futurized sense in which it's true. We can get creative
3: descended into the, into the grave. But this, again, is false. These events happen after the thousand years are ended, according to 27, which is a symbol for a period of time that's at least as long or longer. That's why Yahweh is said to own the cattle on a thousand hills. Obviously, he owns the cattle on the thousand and first hill as well. Moreover, this is said to take place after the first resurrection, and that is Christ's resurrection, which is indicated by such texts as Acts 26, 22, and 23, and 1 Corinthians 15, 20. So these post-millennial uh, events in Revelation coincide with the resurrection of the saints. And this is clear because in Revelation 21.8, God is said to wipe away every tear and that death shall be no more, which evokes Isaiah 25.8, in which Yahweh will swallow up death and wipe away all tears. This is the same Old Testament text that Paul evokes in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says death is swallowed up in victory. And he said that this will happen when the perishable puts on the imperishable. That is, when the dead will be raised imperishable. The second death of the lost is therefore in our future, because the li- the righteous haven't been resurrected yet, not in our distant past. Paul.
0: Yeah, yeah, just a caution to Chris Date here, because if we're reading Re- uh, Revelation in strict accordance to what... Uh, appears to be the author's intent There's every indication that he thought it was going to happen soon, either in his lifetime or shortly afterward. And, um, uh, you know, the literal end times did not happen, uh, you know, that soon. And, um, uh, you know, one assumes that things like the second judgment, you know, they can only occur in the end times. And yet, you know, they didn't occur back then. And yet, his intent was that it should all be fulfilled soon, so it appears. Um, You know, even if we allow a period of a thousand years, you know, to commence and end shortly after his death, um, that period of time has elapsed to, you know, talking about 1100 or 1200. We're well past that. Nothing like that has seemed to happen. and so, you know, you know, that that, in its way, if we were to interpret uh, John under the assumption that, you know, if we were to interpret Revelation on the assumption that it means whatever we think John meant, um, and that it's it can never be wrong, then that would strongly incline us to some kind of hyper-preterism, I should think. You know, impartial preterism, it's a, it's a view that involves a lot of unprincipled seesawing between literal and figurative interpretations of what's happening, and a decision to pre- interpret which as which is, seems to be quite unprincipled and, and arbitrary. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it may, the implication being that if John thought it was all going to be happen, you know, it was all going to be fulfilled soon after his death, then what he's talking about can't be the the actual judgment of the dead um because that can only happen you know uh, during the actual end times and those didn't happen soon after john's death um so he must have meant something else one could assume if one takes john's uh, intent as too controlling a hermeneutic um uh i think arguably the only way you're going to understand revelation is by allowing a fuller meaning you know for example the number of the beast is the number of a man, um, uh, and he's not claiming ignorance. He says, "Let the reader understand." He seems he thinks he knows who it is. In some manuscripts, it's six six six, in others, it's six one six. That triangulates to to um, Caesar Nero. Yet Caesar Nero lived and died, and the literal end times didn't, uh, you know, haven't happened yet. So one assumes that whoever the the Antichrist is during that period, again, you know, very, very simplistic kind of, very um, simplistic approach that assumes uh, a kind of like one-to-one correspondence or like some kind of perspicuity. Of course, Revelation defies both of those things, but I felt like it's kind of what Christate was reaching for, but I also feel like in the limit, if you pursue that approach too much, you end up at something that won't give you what what chris date wants um at least won't won't really give you what anyone can clearly envision if you ask me but um i was interrupted um uh and um so my last recording got cut off a little bit oh it's still the infinite drosta effect up here let me try and get um chris date and keep giles back on the screen
3: Also says that this will happen when the last enemy to be destroyed is death, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Um, Now, my opponent affirms that in universalism, resurrected lost people go to hell, judged in fire. But if death is destroyed at the resurrection, then it's not the last enemy to be destroyed in universalism, since other enemies, including at the very least sin and rebellion themselves, won't be destroyed until long thereafter.
0: Well, if you ask George MacDonald, death and sin are the same thing um i i would agree with in other words george MacDonald decried a gospel that uh taught men to fear the punishment for sin rather than sin itself he saw that punishment for sin is corrective, and sin itself is death spiritual death um you're dead in your trespasses you're dead in your sins etc that's the deeper more searching i think understanding of what the relationship between sin and death and if that is the case then sin death and rebellion all die at once when death is destroyed now in turn i would ask chris date what does he mean when he says death is destroyed if some are in its clutches forever um i think that chris date would mean that um death is destroyed means after a certain point people no longer die people will no longer you know, die as a verb. Um, but as long as we're personifying death, you know, it seems like, which, you know, again, text of Revelation is very much inviting us to do, um, the, the notion that it could be dead while some are, uh, you know, eternally not alive, um, uh, sounds like death kind of holding them in its in its clutches kind of thing Um, so anyway you know that's that's kind of worth uh, considering now I know there's that verse let me find it that that says that um well maybe I can find it on my browser not God of the dead but of the living not God of the not God of the dead but of the living for to him all are alive. And we'll look at the context of that verse, because maybe it won't support, it won't, okay, I want to go to Luke 20. And we'll do the Reformed Standard Version, the the ESV, just to meet, meet Chris Dade on his own ground, I suppose um okay um wait a moment okay here we go and jesus said to them the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage Okay, so note right off, it seems like there's a, there's a distinction between those who are worthy to be resurrected from the dead. So maybe that should cause us to restrict the scope of the word all, when we, when we read, um, for to him all are alive. Only all those worthy to be resurrected, perhaps? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, uh, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised even moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the lord the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob now he is not god of the dead but of the living for all live to him Mm. then some of the scribes yeah well i don't know i mean it doesn't really sound like only those who are resurrected live to him it sounds like everyone um uh, because he says but that the dead are raised he seems to be envisioning to everyone who has died could be wrong i don't know these are things that are hard to understand but um certainly you know he's not god of the dead but of the living For to him all are alive you know that seems possessed of a certain beautiful spiritual meaning which is like you know no one is unremembered by god god knows and remembers everything but to be remembered by god is perforce to exist you know in him in him we live and move and have our being to be in that mind is to be um so but anyway you know maybe chris date doesn't have much patience for reflections like that
3: Uh, A few other texts I want to look at, Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, that only some will undergo the resurrection of life while others will undergo the resurrection of judgment. He says in Luke 20, 34 to 36, that unlike the sons of this age, it will be true of still others, those he says will be considered worthy of resurrection from the dead, that they cannot die anymore, implying, of course, that everyone else will die. And Paul says in Romans 6, 3 to 9, that it's only those baptized into Christ who will join him in a resurrection like his and therefore never die again again uh, to, to sum things up I just want to say this shortly after the beginning of the biblical story access to the tree of life is revoked so that people will be unable to quote eat and live forever that's Genesis 3:22. The ending of the biblical story, therefore, coheres well with its beginning. Access to the tree of life will be restored to the inhabitants of New Jerusalem in Revelation 22, 1 and 2, who will therefore live forever. Sadly, however, and by my opponent's own admission, not everybody will be in in that city, at least not in the time depicted in the imagery, because some, the wicked, will be in the lake of fire. Thank you.
1: Again, you guys are awesome that you've got about five seconds to spare. So uh, really good job there. So I, w- I want to say this, we're about to head into some just open dialogue, but I want to put some of my cards on the table. I'm hosting this, but I am.
0: I want to say some things about that tree because it says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Nations really only seems to have negative reference, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in Revelation, you know, up until that uh, point. Which prompts Robin Perry to believe that somehow those nations are redeemed. Of course Chris Date wouldn't believe that, but then the question is, why does it say nations and not say if it's just for the healing of those uh of of, of, of you know the the righteous um uh you know, believers, you know, the, the, the metaphorical twelve tribes of Israel, um the remnant, the elect, why doesn't it say something like that? Why does it use a word that seemingly refers to Anyone and also, you know, has only had a sort of negative uh, uh, antecedent, um, you know, in in Revelation leading up to that. It's sort of a thing that doesn't just easily fit. I don't think with a particularist reading of Revelation.
1: I'm kind of leaning toward annihilationism. Chris knows this. Keith, I don't know if you know that. I don't. I, I think most of my viewers. Will know that as well. This is not something that I personally actively research. I've done some uh, study into it into the past, and that's kind of led me down this this path. But that that's the kind of view that I lean toward. And so, Keith, today I'm hoping because I am a hopeful universalist. I'm hoping that you can uh, convince not only Chris but me as well in uh, in this dialogue. And I, I, you know, that that's that's kind of a lofty goal. But uh, in any case, the reason why I mentioned that is because I kind of want to let you at this point. Where would you like to begin in Cross-exam—it's not a cross-examination. This is this is more of an open dialogue at this point. But uh, where would you like to begin?
2: Are you asking me? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I had a couple of responses to to some of the things that Chris said, um, and it is Giles, by the way. But that's okay. Um,
1: I Sorry. Would say,
2: that's okay. Uh, I would say that. Uh, um, I mean,
0: actually, it's Gilles, just like my last name. It's not Rivet. It's Rivet. Well, actually, I usually say rivet, too. But it would be interesting to pronounce everyone's names according to like their original like pronunciation, like Cameron Bertuzzi? What about Bertuzzi or whatever it would be, right? Chris Date. Well, I think that would just be Date. Maybe I have to like make it foreign and fancy somehow just to fit the pattern. I'll call him Chris Date. It's just really dumb, but... <laughs>
2: I mean, you, uh, you quoted my book. Thank you very much. Uh, you quoted my book on, for example, like the, um, uh, where I listed some of, the, some of the church fathers who embraced the different views. Um, there are other lists, of course, that are much more comprehensive. Um, Laria Ramelli, for example, in her book on universalism has a much longer and comprehensive list of first century uh, saints who did embrace universalism. So my intention in that portion of the book that you're quoting was not to make a to prove that particular point but um but anyway that's that's another as i said even in my opening statement whether or not they believe that or how long they believe it or whatever is still sort of a secondary question to our conversation um you also um, there's two things i want to respond to as well so you do make a point that um you know that the, the the uh the jewish writings uh during the intertestamental period as well um have no, you know, there was no strong arguments for universalism. And I would say, of course not. These are pre-Christian documents. These are pre-Christian individuals. So that because of Christ, uh, we have this new revelation, this new uh, teaching. And so I don't think anyone should be shocked or surprised that uh, universalism wasn't something embraced prior to Christ or to the teachings of the apostles. Um, And then to the point about... Um, and we're probably going to get into this, I'm sure, and then this may be a good point to get into this part of the conversation. Um, You know, as you point out um, in my book also, I talk about um, this idea of the lake of fire and what's going on in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, And again, as I I believe I also say this in the book uh, also, that the idea of someone being put in the lake of fire to a, to a Christian universalist or universal reconciliation um, believer is not a big deal. Like it's, if, I, if I was thrown in the lake of fire, that would probably be okay because the purpose of that fire is not to kill me. And the purpose of that fire is not to torture me for eternity. Uh, the purpose of that fire uh, as Christian universalists see it.
0: Well, I imagine it would be both to correct you, but also very much not okay in terms of how it's experienced you know, my view on hell is whether or not it is strictly endless in the sense that we understand it's still the worst thing that can happen to you. And so it is still to be avoided at all costs. And and my inspiration for trying to understand hell comes largely from the near death experiences of those who claim to have been there. And it sounds just like some kind of, I mean, it, it sounds totally indescribable, um, um uh and i imagine the lake of fire would be just an, an indescribable degree of torment that even if it wasn't literally forever it would feel forever and by the way you know so you say hey cal come on why can't you just take the bible at face value when it talks about forever it doesn't you know, just take take it at its word two responses first maybe the word that is translated forever does shouldn't always be translated forever really actually a very respectable case to be made for that. But leave that aside. Does forever always mean forever? You know, uh, in, in the Old Testament continually, it talks about God's wrath being on you forever, and then it lifts. Just like all doesn't always mean all. And so, you know, even if I granted in every case that the word being translated as forever should be translated as that, which it's not necessarily a good idea to grant just from the standpoint of accuracy. Still, um, you know, uh, does this forever always mean forever? You know, The only w- reason particularism works is that all doesn't always have to mean all. There's so many verses, scores of verses it must be, where all has to be interpreted as not all in order for particularism to work. And that's not illegitimate. But what's so often unappreciated is that it's not illegitimate, um, i.e. it is legitimate, uh, to to see forever as, as not forever, but as an intensifier, you know And there are indeed lots of verses that you know, even just just you know they kind of tell you to interpret things like that because Lamentations uh, three thirty one through 33 the Lord will not reject forever for if he causes grief Then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness um, He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men so you know, I mean, scripture interprets scripture, yeah, but where to start? Where to place the emphasis? You know, seems to me that yeah. you know, these are open questions. However, if you're not going to be universalist, you just got to, you know, throw away or severely circumscribe the meaning of those verses as opposed to letting them, you know, expand and breathe. And, you know, it's all a question of which verses you choose to give priority to, you know
2: is to purify and refine um and to uh to reveal Christ in us. And so uh what and so you, again, you know, yes, are they in the lake of fire? Are they not in the lake of fire? Um I would point out that in Revelation 22, um after the lake of fire, these same saints are, uh, I'm sorry, these same sinners are outside the gates of the city. Uh we are it makes a very emphatic point of a couple of important things. Number one, that the gates of that city uh, are never shut um that the people who supposedly were thrown in the lake of fire just a a chapter or two ago are now outside the city gates and then the cry goes out uh, if any are thirsty which you might be you might be thirsty if you just spent some time in the lake of fire if any are thirsty let them come and drink, drink freely from the river of life that flows from the throne of christ and by the way when you get there and you start drinking from that river you might look up and notice that these trees that surround Uh, that that line this river of life uh, are specifically covered in leaves that are for the healing of the nations, the nations being those very sinners who are outside the walls. And so I I emphatically feel that the ending of Scripture, the ending of Revelation, ends on a very positive note to sinners and to those who reject and even go to war with Christ in Revelation. Uh, It ends with a very hopeful note.
0: Okay, this is going to be real interesting because um, Chris Dates going to push back And, um, I'm going to kind of agree with Chris date kind of, you know, those outside the city gates. Well, first of all, if they were destroyed in the second death as annihilationism would have it, um, you know, um, they're seemingly not destroyed anymore. It says outside are the dogs. Now you can interpret that as metaphor. Um, but you know, it's, it's, um, why be literal in terms of understanding death's destruction in that in that case you know um you can interpret both as metaphor or neither as metaphor but you know it's again the kind of unprincipled seesawing that i was talking about it does the text at the end of revelation does speak as though they continue to exist outside are the dogs now it's not a very nice term however it recalls uh, you know, this whole book is supposedly like inspired by or even dictated by Jesus through an angel. If our Lord inspired the use of that word, it, inc- it recalls Jesus' encounter with a Syrophoenician woman in which he commends the faith of a Gentile who dared to imagine that the mercy of the kingdom might extend to the dogs at the edge of the children's table. So, you know, sounds bad at first, but Christologically... Um, how can it, I mean, it, it, it certainly recalls that encounter. And you might just say, ah, oh, it's meaningless, just psh, quiet. But um, now the invitation, you know, if you read your Bible, it says that invitation is spoken by John, in which case probably John doesn't have the authority to call those outside the gates into, into the city. Um, the Universalists tend to read that invitation as coming from Jesus and going to the dogs outside the city neglecting the fact that jesus could be addressing john's readers instead of because they say well it's either to those inside the city or outside of the city those inside are already inside so it has to be toward toward those outside but they're neglecting the fact that jesus could be addressing john or john's readers or both you know um but you know that assumes jesus is even giving the invitation in most bibles it will show i think that that john is Giving that invitation, and Jesus says some of it, but then John says some other part of it. And if John is saying it, the implication seems to be that it's going to the readers. However, there aren't any quotation marks in the Greek, and it's not like the text says he said, then then John said, then Jesus said, etc. It's an inference. The translators have put that there. Um, when it seems to me they don't necessarily have to. And again, the question is, you know, is, is Revelation? What is the tense of Revelation? Future, past, or present? Um, uh a future understanding you might say if revelation if if that if that if the if the tense of that invitation is not future then that means it's it's sort of going to those who exist in the present um but um uh who's to say it's not both and who's to say that the invitation is not issued both by jesus and by john both uh, to john's to john and john's readers and those outside the city um, why not all of the above um, uh, christ seems to be seems willing to go to any limit in order to um, accomplish the redemption of humankind you know and it's written that god is not willing that any should perish again you might say well does any really mean any there you go um you know if we take that at face value god's not willing that any should perish and you know, jesus doesn't seem willing to stop at any limit you know to to accomplish the redemption of humankind why wouldn't he also be addressing those outside the city why is there just a time limit you know christ is the same today uh, yesterday and uh, forever something like that anyway you know i mean it seems to me like a not inadmissible reading it would have probably is not what the author meant But again, you know, the author meant a lot of things that didn't turn out to be, you have to keep that in mind. So you would have to read it in as a fuller meaning, Uh, which again, this this doesn't seem to be what the author meant. So I'm gonna be with Chris Date when he pushes back on Keith Giles regarding to whom the invitation goes.
2: Even though you've gone into the lake of fire, even though you're on the outside of this city, um, the gates are never shut. And the cry is given out, if you're thirsty, come and drink freely and come and receive this healing that is open to you. And that is completely consistent with the view of someone uh, who embraces universal reconciliation.
3: Yeah, it's just it's not consistent with the Book of Revelation itself. Um, And this will be a good place to start diving in, I think, because your interpretation of Revelation trades on a really... um, Mis, uh, I, uh, for, at risk of sounding a little harsh a misguided understanding of how the vision, the kind of vision recorded in Revelation works um, the, the just like the earliest dreams and visions in scripture, stretching back to Joseph's interpretation of uh, Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 40 with the seven cows eating the first seven cows that came up out of the Nile Daniel's dream of the four beasts, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue and so on and so forth, these visions are highly symbolic visions they don't actually depict the future what they depict are a variety of symbolic scenes that symbolize the future now that's important for a few reasons first of all it doesn't matter that the wicked are still outside the gates in revelation 22 that doesn't mean that the that the wicked won't in reality have died in hell because again
0: yeah it doesn't mean they will have died either as far as i know giles isn't doing anything illegitimate He's, he's not imagining it's going to happen just like that. He's, he's, he's giving it a symbolic meaning, which for him just happens to be universalist. I'm failing to see Date's point here.
3: Their ongoing experience in the lake of fire is part of the symbolism. And the question is, what does that symbolism mean in reality? What does it symbolize? And we actually know that. It's, it's right there in the text. John says...
0: Date is going for an argument that's like, Revelation is symbolic, therefore it can only mean what I see. That's really kind of sounds like what he's saying.
3: ...that this scene, he says in uh, Revelation twenty fourteen, and God says in Revelation 21, 8, that the lake of fire is the second death. Now, what's important about this is that if you go back through all those various kinds of visions and dreams I just mentioned, Um, That kind of statement, the the thing in the imagery is this thing over here. That kind of statement is interpretation of the vision. It's not mere description. So, for example, um, when going back to what I described earlier, when Joseph is interpreting Pharaoh's dream for him, in Pharaoh's dream, seven uh, healthy cows come up out of the Nile, and then seven sickly cows come up out of the Nile and eat the first seven. Now. What what Joseph does is tell Pharaoh that the seven cows are seven years. Now, of course, the seven years is just not, it's not another description of cows. You wouldn't say if you want to know what seven years are, look at the cows. That would be ridiculous. The point is, is that the seven cows symbolize.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, dear, dear viewer, that you're being subjected to an ad simply due to my stinginess refusing to pay for YouTube premium
3: eyes seven years so when John says the lake of fire is the second death what he's doing is saying the symbol is the lake of fire but its interpretation the thing that will happen in reality is the wicked will die a second time and in fact that's why all throughout
0: well it says what will happen in reality is the second death now what does that mean? if you keep insisting on interpreting the word uh, death in this flat and literal sense then yes, it means that they will die, but I don't know that the Bible always means that when it speaks of death. It seems to speak of something worse, you know? Again, it's the thing that Hitler thought he was avoiding when he chose mere physical death in preference to it
3: the contemporaneous aramaic targums the translations of the old testament hebrew into aramaic use the phrase second death to say that the wicked will literally die a second time and not participate in the life of the eschaton this is also by the way why death in haiti
0: yeah again i'm not sure we care about the Targums. i'm sorry i, I don't i don't know that that controls the interpretation of anything in christian scripture
3: who are in revelation 6 depicted as conscious entities a, a knight and his squire as it were he's the fourth fourth horseman of the apocalypse these conscious beings death and hades are thrown into the lake of fire too but what does that symbolize well we're told in revelation 21 4 what it symbolizes hathana tas uk estai eti death shall be no more. This is the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, when he says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. The word katargeo, meaning to cause, to cease to exist. And this is the same thing that's meant by Isaiah 25, which both Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and John in Revelation 20, they both, or sorry, 21, both allude to. Namely, Isaiah 25, where Yahweh will swallow up death forever. So the, the fate of death in Hades is annihilation. Um, the fate of the wicked is to literally die a second time. It doesn't matter that in the imagery they continue to exist in Revelation 22 because the imagery symbolizes the reality of the wicked.
0: If this argument has only assumed what it is concluding
3: dying a second time, which is exactly what your um, universalist position requires one denies. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say before handing things back over to you and or Cam is that um, the the messages at the end of Revelation are indeed hopeful, but they are not hopeful in the universalistic sense. Um, the statements at the end of, of Revelation 22 are meant to encourage John's readers then and all throughout of history until these events unfold.
0: Well, I have a question for the Calvinist, um, Chris Date, it says the spirit and the bride say, come. And that statement is coming from a, a you know, a, a vision that's still ongoing. That statement is being issued within a vision that is ongoing, you know, that uses the present tense of the dogs outside the city, outside are the dogs, suggesting that at that point, you know, that's a present reality it's a vision coming from a time when the last things have sort of happened um, and it says the bride say come spirit and the bride say come it's supposed, i mean presumably the bride encompasses all those whose names are in the book of life so the question is whom whom is he inviting because the bride says come what to itself i mean maybe Except there doesn't seem to be any reason for that, um, you know, especially for a Calvinist who views what will happen as as foreordained fact rather than some open possibility which requires dynamic action in the present in order to be actualized. So you know, Jerzak says that as the bride, um, uh, you know, because because those who will uh, avail themselves. Um, in this life of the opportunity to wash their robes are already in the bride at the time that the invitation is going out. It must be going out to those who at that future time will not have been in the bride, i.e. the dogs outside the city. I don't know that one can refute that from, from a Calvinist point of view, unless one says, Hey, you're just over-interpreting revelation. But you know, it seems to me that the particulars, uh, interpretations, of revelation can be accused of over over interpreting the text in other areas so
3: because after all the the, it's he's not saying people can wash their robes in the eschaton he's saying wash your robes now while you still can but there will come a point in time where nobody will be able to wash their robes anymore because they will have died a second time
2: yeah so i'm just curious um, um You, you know, you talk about how these symbols mean something and point to something. So in your mind, um, and maybe this is just a clarification of what you just said, but uh, I would like to hear your clarification of it. What is then the significance of stressing in Romans twenty sorry Revelation 22 that the gates are never shut, um, that the leaves that are uh, growing alongside the river of life are specifically for the healing of the nations, and that these people outside the city who, in, I guess in your mind, are dead, um, are called out to, yeah. hey, come and in, come inside and drink freely and, and receive this healing.
3: So some of those things that you stated are accurate, others are not. Let me talk about the accurate things first. Yes, Revelation says the gates will never be shut, but that's not how that statement ends. In Revelation 21, 25, it says they will never be shut by day for there will be no night there. You see, the right. picture is that there will no longer be sin and evil and threat and, and danger. That's why the
0: Yes, again, the Calvinists construes God entirely in terms of power and of God's, you know, dealings with uh, his creation as, you know, entirely a matter of power relations. Rejoice, we have nothing to fear. Well, we never had anything to fear. Rejoice, God has shown that he can triumph in, 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 in physical, temporal terms over our earthly enemies. Well, he always had that power. So if revelation or the eschaton is all about God demonstrating that power, that seems kind of pointless and anticlimactic. One had imagined it would have been about something more.
3: The gates are open, not so that anybody can come in. The second thing that you mentioned is the he, the tree being its leaves being for the healing of the nations. Again, this is imagery, um, The the the, the, um, the imagery
0: Right, right. It's imagery. Therefore, you have to interpret it my way. It's not right for you to interpret it some way other than mine
3: is of people having continued ongoing access within the new jerusalem to the tree of life and thereby receiving constant healing that's the imagery but what it's but what it represents in reality is what the tree of life was originally capable of doing namely keeping people alive forever it's 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 a symbol of the immortality that resurrected believers are given by virtue of their unity with christ it's not intended to be taken literally
0: why did why then does it say nations rather than elect believers saints any other word you care to name why does it say the word nations which only has uh, negative and troublesome antecedents
3: really as if we will have to be healed of wounds in the eschaton it's imagery now the thing that you said that was inaccurate is that the wicked who are outside the gates um are at that time welcomed to wash the robes, come in and drink from the water. No, this is an an invitation that John is offering his readers now. He's saying, now wash your robes, now drink from the water before it's too late.
0: Well, yeah, Chris Date has triumphantly delivered himself of an interpretation of Revelation as though it were the only possible one I'm not sure he demonstrated that I mean it is an interpretation you know that that's true did
3: I lose somebody
2: no I mean I'm here I'm not sure if Cameron's still there
3: (laughs) I, I,
2: I would just say I mean this is this is a great opportunity I think just to point out um you know that two different believers can read the same scriptures and come away with different perspectives and um Anyway, and in Revelation, of course, I mean, this is probably not the best place for us to camp out, because Revelation, as I think Chris would admit, is probably one of the most confusing books in the entire Bible. Anyone who thinks they understand it completely is lying to you. Um, it's filled with sim- 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 what am I trying to say? Symbolism and imagery. And um and so, and I think even when you get to the point of like what you know, what is in view in Revelation, um, I mean, Chris, I know you're a partial preterist, I'm I am a preterist and so I when I I'm come to Revelation as well
3: then, hopefully you're not a yeah. hyper though
2: well I,
0: yes hopefully you're not a you know a loaded term that I just you know made up right now yeah well Chris did I understand you're a Calvinist hopefully you're not a hyper-Calvinist oh did you actually end up satisfying my definition of a hyper-Calvinist let's watch
2: I don't come when I read those scriptures in Revelation I don't I don't necessarily think i'm reading about something that's going to happen sometime in the future at the end of time Uh, i believe what i'm doing is i'm reading a highly uh imaginative uh story
0: i mean if you're a partial preterist the question is again where do you get off deciding to interpret some things literally and others you know figuratively or with what degree of literality like you know why are you Interpreting this semi-literally and that other thing, like just very figuratively, it's all—it's all up in the air.
2: Using a lot of thick, sim, you know, symbolism about specifically how Christ subverts empire and did so in eighty seventy, and um, and then it's a template of sorts for in general how on in going into the future. Yes, the kingdom of, of Christ subverts the kingdoms of the of the world, but I don't typically to be honest turns revelation to find out what's going to happen sometime in the future
3: i understand and and i'm happy to look at the more didactic statements that i talked about in my opening presentation and that no doubt and that you did as well um but if you think the entirety of revelation was fulfilled in the past including the thousand years john sees transpire then you are a hyper preterist and that makes or at least in in when it comes to the book of revelation and that would make me extremely concerned because hyperpreterists, as a general rule of thumb deny future bodily resurrection of the dead do you think that um humankind will one day rise
2: bodily from the dead i do believe that that post-mortem we continue to to be alive and we continue
0: Remember, anything that isn't Chris Dates' literal interpretation of the Bible simply isn't biblical.
2: To be in the presence of Christ. Uh, Whether that's in a body, Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's in some form of a body, yes.
3: No, 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 no. I'm not asking if you think we have bodies immediately after we die of some other sort. I'm asking, will our physical bodies rise from their graves like the Bible teaches?
2: um i i can only say it as clearly so as i just this is, i believe so
3: that we, uh a we in that resurrected that, bodies, i believe we okay.
2: will have so,
3: so I, I just want viewers to see this this is this is one of the reasons why i am concerned about universalism is because it does lead to um what appears to be a straightforward denial of the physical resurrection of the dead the likes of which christ experienced his he wasn't Ooh, just given the a new body, of which his old body came back up out of the tomb.
0: yes and then did things that physical bodies do not do I, I think you chose a bad example
3: do you think that will happen with
2: us as well well it wasn't the same body right Christ's so, body so is you resurrected think that his old body a, just
3: disappeared it...
2: it was a glorified resurrected body which could take on immaterial form as well as material form
3: but what happened to the body that was in the tomb
2: it resurrected
3: thank you so you do think our physical bodies will come back up out of the grave and be transformed
2: yeah
0: i mean i don't want this to be a debate i mean don't be too literal with this my goodness what happens to people who are who are incinerated what grave do they come out of i mean i guess the molecules of which they were once reconstitute or which they were once assembled are called forth but you know they could be part of new other bodies at that point even conceivably other people's bodies don't get too literal with this i mean my goodness it's not going to lead at all to you know any kind of clean tidy picture you, you have to step a little bit back from the literalism here
2: Debate about the resurrection okay. or any of that stuff like, i I, well, I think let uh, viewers decide for themselves yeah i, I think uh, I, I affirm the resurrection of christ um, i probably lean closer to someone like marcus borg on the side of um, how that what that might have looked like but also in in solidarity with him also would say that I think it is not necessarily that important um, if it's the exact same cellular organism or if it's a another body that my spirit inhabits.
3: So I'm happy to let viewers consider the ramifications of...
0: Guys, don't overcomplicate it. You just say it's the same body, but now it's a different kind. Unless, you know, well, no, I mean, Chris date has to answer what happens when, you know, you're asking the that the atoms of which a person used to be made are just like called back from whatever other new configurations they may find themselves in. Um, you know, which may be the bodies of living Christian saints. And so new, new atoms have to be supplied for them. Okay. Whatever. Assume that this works. And you just say, okay, the old body rises, but it is now of a new kind. It can do different things. So, you know, what, what Giles wanted to answer it's it's, um, Uh, It's not the same kind of body, even if it's in some loose sense, the same body, but, you know, I mean, identity does not rest just on molecules. I mean, the molecules of your brain, they're always, there's the molecular turnover of your your brain, you know, not not speaking for the cytoplasm, but for the the rest of the cells, it's, you know, something close to 100% every three months, you know. We're not—we're not our molecules. We are our patterns um,
3: of universalism, ble- leading to a denial of what the Bible teaches about resurrection.
2: Um, Wait, can, so- I just, can I just—can I just—can I just quickly say, though, Chris, it's unfair to say that if you're a universalist, you—you you agree with me on something you're hour, absolutely hour, hour, right hour, hour, robin production. perry is
3: a thoroughly i agree robin perry for example is a thoroughly right. orthodox uh, universalist who believes in the bodily resurrection of the dead right. um so, so it's not but, like a slippery
2: slope that will lead you to some different views about the resurrection
1: no but i'm Can not going jump in
3: real robin quick perry. i'm debating you of course kim
1: yeah so i, I just want to say that i mean what keith has laid out here it sounds like i i pretty much agree with him about the the resurrection. It's, I mean, it, it is going to be a different body. I don't know what. I mean, personally, I like have no idea what it's going to be like or what if it's going to be made up of cells or what. I have no idea. I I believe that it's going to be physical in some sense, but then at the same time, like Jesus's body, obviously described in the Gospels, when he came back was a whole lot different. So I mean, is, does it operate according to different laws of nature? Is that what the difference is? I I don't know, but it sounds like I mean I don't necessarily disagree with what what Keith is saying yeah, here. I, so. I, I,
3: so notice, notice how this, much. The, Notice how much Keith resisted affirming that our bodies, when they are dead, will be brought back up and transformed. He didn't want to answer that.
2: No. What? where's well, Let me be fair. Okay. Let's be fair here. What? What?
0: What if that description is symbolic, though? You know. I mean, well, you know. Again, rising out of graves. There's a lot of people who didn't die in graves. I mean, maybe it's meant to be more comprehensive. Who knows? I mean,
2: what I'm affirming is is that I don't know. And that i don't feel like i've got some authority to say it is absolutely this and if you don't believe it's this i mean chris you apparently do have that level of confidence that if you don't believe it's this one particular way you're absolutely wrong and now you're off in some heretical uh, wonderland uh, i feel like hey uh i'm affirming the resurrection i believe everyone will have a resurrected body and what that body looks like i'm just going to tell you i don't believe i have the information to uh, to, do you to say think, one way or the other, and know that I think it would matter. Chris, I don't think it's an issue of, of have, debate for anybody to care about whether or not it's this or that.
1: I am going to have to jump in. Let's change subjects. Let's get let's get back to the subject. At Chris, I know that you would probably love to talk about this a little bit more right now, <laughs> but I think? feel like I feel like it's going to take us uh, further further off track from the debate topic. So where can we to talk about? You
3: see what transpired and consider the ramifications themselves.
1: So yeah. we've talked about Revelation a little bit. Is there any other? Are there any other passages in Scripture, Keith, that you would like to bring up that you maybe think support your view? And in, in, uh, well, in, in, yeah.
2: And I know I know Chris already has responses to these, but um, that's the whole point, right? So um, I read some, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a selection of scriptures. Um, by the way, in my book, I've got like thirty-six, um, um, I believe, or no, 76, 76 verses. From the, from the Bible that support the, uh, the view of universal reconciliation. So we can't go into all of them, of course. But I, I chose a few that I felt do represent the view of reconciliation. Um, and so I guess I'd be kind of curious to, to you know, at least let Chris respond to that. Yeah,
0: spoiler um, alert. All doesn't so mean I, all. Let me see. Um, okay. I think I've had enough for today. Um, let's go back here back in the drastic effect world. Maybe I'll just continue just recapping by recapping my, my philosophical case against annihilationism. Um, let me see, do I have a mute mic option here anywhere? Right, okay, just that may come in handy later. You know, I'll just kind of read through some of my notes and respond to them. Not that I imagine Chris Date would lay very much emphasis on philosophy as opposed to scripture. Um, but you know, again, I would just—I can only say—if the—if the very quote-unquote faithful or literal or one-to-one reading of scripture leads you to something ridiculous, then you probably shouldn't interpret it that way. And goodness knows. It's not like most people who have read the Bible have found themselves just inevitably forced to, to become annihilationists. It's quite the contrary. It's a minority position. Um, so, you know, again, I, I just want to consider what, what annihilationism seems to involve, however it's life. Intermediate state, no intermediate state. Um, resurrection after soul sleep or eternal soul sleep upon death. Um maybe there's more variations of which I'm unaware, Um, uh, granted I still don't know too much about annihilationism, but when I try to inhabit that viewpoint with something like intellectual empathy, try to see, try it on for myself, try to see if I could be an an annihilationist, I just don't find that I can successfully do it. Um, I'm going to read from my my notes. You know, when I met, so I wrote this little dialogue. uh, Is suicide a sin? Yes, it is punishable by hell. What is hell? Non-existence. The the person who committed suicide already doesn't exist. Well, no, they're resurrected so they can know how wrong their sin of suicide was. So their sin of suicide can be punished by sending them back to the state of non-existence. You know, it's like, uh, I don't get it. Like, I somehow imagine God is different than that um uh most annihilationists interpret scripture literally and as a result they believe in resurrection of the unrighteous dead on the day of judgment however uh this leads to a problem again leaving uh, aside the manifest absurdity of uh, calling a suicide victim back into existence just to punish them by giving them what they wanted in the first place I, i think i already went over that um ordinarily justice is understood as an operation that writes some imbalance some existing imbalance but in, in in annihilationism it's like the status quo is already what justice requires and so there's this redundant operation of resurrection and re yeah maybe to provide a spectacle to other people but um it's 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 attributing a kind of shallow, uh, an anthropomorphic motive to God. God, God can accomplish you know, his purposes in other ways. Although, yes, maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe that's that's the the grand meaning of the Bible is that there's just this kind of kangaroo point, kangaroo court, pointless spectacle of resurrection and redestruction just to show everyone what they could have already guessed. Um, Uh, in annihilationism the judgment undoes the sentence yeah or that i'm kind of repeating myself at this point but yeah again the sense is like you know god god looks at history's most evil men who would otherwise be sleeping in the graves were it not for his active sustenance of their consciousness which he may choose to do for unknowable reasons Again, as long as we make it unknowable, we can punt to mystery and not have to answer these, these awkward questions. But, you know, it's as if God looks at history's most evil men sleeping in their graves, asking, what's going on here? They're sleeping in the peace of death. You know, that's, that, that's, that's unacceptable. So he tells them to wake up and that it's time to go to sleep. And then thereby, he really teaches them a lesson that they can't remember because they don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, uh, I talked about the atheist who uh, his whole life, mistakenly believed that existence is just a brief, um, absurd show followed by eternal oblivion only to find out that, oh, oh my goodness, how wrong he was. And, and, um, you know, that's actually exactly what it is in another way in a truly absurd way. Um. Let's see. Yeah, God resurrects uh, the dead for the purpose of torturing them prior to their redestruction. It would be as if He valued the torture not for the end that brought it about, but somehow for its own sake. Unless the end was to edify uh, the righteous and the elect, as though the God who, whom Jesus called Father was—I don't know what—the the, the impresario of some. gladiatorial game you know um when when they see when those who are the you know the the beneficiaries of your corrective punishment cease to exist so that they cannot remember the consequences of what you taught them there was no reason for you to have uh uh you know punish them in the afterlife unless it was just to make you feel good or provide some spectacle in the interim. I mean, or unless, again, the ways of God are not our ways. You know, that that's just assuming the ways of God conform exactly to how you interpreted scripture. What if the way you interpreted scripture isn't, you know, the way it should be interpreted? Um, you know, it's it's somehow, you know, the impression that Chris Date gives is that anyone who disagrees with him is arrogant as if that presumption itself is not arrogant, you know? Um, um, Let me see. Uh, Yeah, does punishment have to be experienceable? Again, an interesting question. If the answer is no, um, there's no apparent reason for the unrighteous dead to be resurrected. You know, they're already um, being punished. You know whatever exactly that means. Again, unless it's to provide some some show. Um, uh, it's like okay, well, let's assume punishment has to be experienceable in order for it to be punishment, but then annihilation can't function as punishment. Um, I re- I asked why would you go to the trouble of punishing them if they're going to be destroyed? Conversely, if the sinful dead are not resurrected how can they be punished so again it, it's kind of getting into the 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 troublesome situation of having to affirm that somehow um uh it, it, you know eternal non-existence is is the you know condign punishment for basically any possible sin or 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 profile of sins. And yet also knowing that that's not really true. So, you know, one has to kind of undercut it, but, you know, one can't undercut it. Um, you know, one can a- neither affirm nor deny that 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 premise. Um, again, you know, punting to mystery is always an option. Um, what did I write here? The problem with annihilationism is that Execution is supposedly all the punishment a sinner could need and yet non-existence at the point of death is by the annihilationist's own apparent standards, still not judged sufficient, since the extra step of, re- of resurrecting the sinner apparently needs to be taken. It's as if annihilationism itself doesn't take its own premise seriously. So I'm really just saying the same thing in different ways. Um, and um, maybe maybe um that's uh that this is where i should stop and maybe i've not been sufficiently charitable or maybe there's something i'm not seeing um but um uh i'll cap things off here for now and um maybe do another uh, do a sequel or something later um and yeah hopefully my tone wasn't too uncharitable throughout this cuz i tend to get tired and cranky and um, I've not been interacting with any people, so that can make make me um, less sensitive um, than I ought to be. So you know, I, I am uh, uh, I'm sorry if I was um, too dismissive or uncharitable at any point um, in this video. but um yeah, I just wanted to lay those thoughts out there. Um, if anyone has any reactions, they can react and um, take it from there.